Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, June the 11th, 2013. And I want to tell you right off so that I don't forget, try to repeat it at the end of the half hour today. There will be a memorial for Barbara Oliver at the Berkeley Rep this coming Monday. Barbara Oliver uh, is a was a great theater personality. Uh, she's responsible for the creation. She's the creatrix of the Aurora Theater. Uh, uh, her history goes back to, well, I remember first meeting her in, it was either 68 or 69, at the Berkeley Rep. Uh, it was then, uh, it was then a tiny theater on College Avenue near Ashby. Marvelous days. Anyway, the memorial, the celebration of her life, will be this coming Monday, June 17th at 7 p.m. Once again, 7 p.m. on the 17th at the Rhoda Theater. You know, there are two theaters. The Berkeley Rep uh, has two theaters over there. It's on Alston Way. I think it's Alston, right? You know, you go down Shattuck and you go Let's see, north on Shattuck, and if you hit university, you've gone too far, you know. Anyway, uh, all the theater people know where the Berkeley Rep is, and of course, uh, it's at the Rhoda Theater, Monday night. Monday was selected because so many uh, theater people, uh, you know, their evenings are full, except for Monday. Monday, most of the theaters are dark, so... This is a chance for everyone to come, and uh, I'm not quite sure what the rules will be about speaking, but I, I think the family will probably decide. Anyway, that's Monday night. Now, today, I have a little axe to grind. I just wanted to mention before I... I'm getting, uh, I'm getting into Virginia Woolf today, but first of all, uh, I want to segue from the word atheism. Just recently, I have run into a couple folks who seem to be using the word atheism as a pejorative, you know, saying that it's uh, negative, that, you know, the sort of thing, Jefferson wasn't an atheist, he was a deist, all that stuff, as if being an atheist uh, 
well, as Mitch says, yes, more like an anarchist or something. Uh, I think uh, I was watching a film last night, which the uh, Emma Thompson was playing the Catholic matron in Brideshead Revisited, and a young man from Oxford tells her that he's an atheist. And she says, oh, oh, no, uh, an agnostic, surely. You know, you're not that bad, dear, that kind of thing. Uh, that was what movie was that? Brideshead Revisited, the two-hour film. Amazing movie. Anyway, I thought what I would do, rather than quote uh, Christopher Hedges and all those folks, uh, so many people have tried to define atheism in the last few years. Uh, you know, there are several books that are what I would call really, they, they really condemn God. And of course, Buddha never did that. Uh, uh, he never expressed an opinion either way. Uh, I think I think what we need to do is read a feminist definition of atheism. I found it in, I found one that I like very much in Barbara G. Walker's uh, Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets. I've got a big uh, paperback of that. It's, it's only $20. I love it. Uh, anyway, Barbara Walker, you know, she, she has a wonderful way of spinning things. She puts things uh, in what I would call... Uh, well, in the real light of uh, language, uh, I think, you know, I think this connotation of atheism being a rejection uh, is very, very, what, uh, it, you know, it, it has, it has, it has no, no strength. Um, I think an atheist is simply someone who's still looking for meaning, uh, someone... Anyway, here's what Barbara G. Walker says. Atheism, she says, from Greek, atheos, that is A-T-H-E-O-S, is one who denies the existence of any god. Christian theologians tended to regard atheism as devilish. Although atheism implied disbelief in devils as well as all other supernatural entities. Oriental thinkers were less simplistic about atheism. The more advanced sages taught that non-belief can be more religious than belief. Indeed, atheism may make better human beings than faith can make. In the East, uh, it is not thought impossible that atheism may be as profoundly religious as theism, nor is atheism regarded by religious men as in itself unspiritual. <laughs> Here we go trying to prove a neg never mind, negative, yes. She goes on to say, this is extremely hard for a Westerner to understand he does not see that the essence of religion lies in the religious experience and not in any belief at all. Uh, all so-called religious beliefs or doctrines are merely theories about the religious experience. <laughs> Here we go again, yes. It's merely a theory, you know, like evolution. <laughs> Nuts. Oh, language. Anyway, 
Uh, she goes on to quote uh, a guy called W.Y. Evans Wentz, W-E-N-T-Z. He was a British student of Tibetan Buddhism. He's the guy who translated the Tibetan Book of the Dead in 1927. Anyway, uh, he calls attention to uh, the, what is it, the Eastern thought that the fatherhood of God as a personal and anthropomorphic deity is the cornerstone of Christian theology. But in Buddhism, although the Buddha neither denied nor affirmed the existence of a supreme deity, it has no place because, as the Buddha maintained, neither believing nor not believing in a supreme God, but self, self-exertion in right doing is essential to comprehending the true nature of life. Okay, that sounds like existentialism to me. <laughs> yes, uh, what we do matters. Uh, by these standards, Barbara Walker goes on to write, by these standards, no criminal could be considered religious, no matter how much faith he professed. Well, I I suppose he, what is it, he might be religious if he stopped being a criminal. Oh, this is such a, a conundrum. Conversely, she writes, no person, no person who treated his fellow creatures well could be considered irreligious, no matter how many gods he denied. Oriental sages viewed theological reasoning with a certain contempt, viewed it as irrelevant, you know, to the behavior that constitutes true religion. Ah, Mere talk about religion is only an intellectual exercise. Let's see. Of what use are grand phrases about the soul on the lips of those who hate and injure one another? Uh, religion is kindness. Yes, she's put together a whole bunch of quotes to try to make sense of it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that that really holds up either. Uh, what I wanted to talk about was sacred text. Yes, uh, yes, Gandhi says, the truth is God. And I think that will do for me. Uh, in the beginning was the word, my religion or my religious experience is, uh, well, it's about words. It is words. It is language, the thing that makes us a little special, not better than the other animals, but kind of unique. Uh, It is for this reason that I have always talked about my literary saints, that is, the the writers, those who give us sacred text. Uh, They're not, what is it, uh, hmm, They are not all uh, equally sacred, and I don't revere them equally. Uh, I need to remember that is put together again some of the writers that uh, I think write, give us sacred text. Uh, God knows, if you've been reading the novels that have been written in the last few decades, you will know that, (laughs) that, what is it, that it is not just irreligious, it's just pulp. It's nothing. Uh, empty, empty. Yes. Virginia Woolf, of course. Well, she's the sort of, she's the sort of 
literary saint that uh, I have always revered. I do think, you know, we can analyze her. She's, of course, imperfect. Uh, she's certainly not godlike. Uh, I think she should have written more criticism, more essays, you know, kept kept house in the literary uh, temple. I, I like her essays best, although I go back to the novels um, from time to time. I think maybe in the late Victorian era, novels were the best way she could uh, reach to people. Um, I was thinking, Wolf, yes, I made a list the other day, and she's at the end of the list, not the top of the list. The list begins, right, Jane Austen, the Brontes, so forth. I came up with 26 literary saints just just for fun. Anyway, uh, I think that the thing to do, you know, is to, what is that? Uh, use, use Virginia Woolf as the headmistress in this little college I have, you know, sacred texts, yes. Now, let's not always see the same hands, boys and girls. My oldest son is going off to London uh, this Saturday, and I I just got this Bloomsbury picture in my head. I, I want him to go to all the little bookstores and find me some arcane, esoteric, and sacred texts, you know. I'm not sure he will find texts by women, uh, Virginia Woolf, back in 1928, she had a little essay called A Room of One's Own, and she wrote, It is useless to go to the great men writers for help, however much one may go to them for pleasure. Uh, Virginia wrote, I know that I must go on doing this dance on hot bricks till I die. Uh, in any study of Virginia Woolf, it's important to remember that she was not just neurotic or high-strung. She had bouts of psychotic madness during which she had to be uh, subdued, you know. I think they used a straitjacket. She had to be nursed and cared for in isolation. Uh, now, many people argued that... Uh, Childhood sexual abuse was the cause of her illness. I, I don't know whether I buy that or not. Uh, obviously, it exacerbated her condition. Uh, her first suicide attempt, I think, came when she was 13, shortly after her mother died. Uh, here's a letter to Ethel Smythe, written in January 1941, in which uh, she writes... I still shiver with shame at the memory of my half-brother standing me on a ledge, aged about six or so, exploring my private parts. It's the end of the quote. Now, this half-brother, George Duckworth, was Virginia's mother's son by an earlier marriage. Uh, he would have been in his twenties at the time of this abuse, uh... Virginia's nephew, her biographer, actually, Quinton Bell, he's the son of Vanessa, her sister, yes. Uh, Vanessa was close to Virginia in sympathy and age. He wrote about his aunt, he, he wrote that she felt that George had spoiled her life before it had fairly begun. 
Uh, right, obviously, what she felt is what matters. Uh, he goes on to say that she was naturally shy in sexual matters. Well, how would he know? Yes. Shy naturally? Well, um, he goes on to say she was from this time, the time of the abuse, terrified back into a posture of frozen and defensive panic. Well, that's the end of the quote from Quentin Bell. This is always, uh, well, it's one of the presumptions uh, that frigidity is the result of, um, what is that, sexual abuse. We know that it can be just the opposite. Vanessa suffered the same abuse and she became completely male-identified. She said that she had sympathized with uh, male sexuality since she was two years old. Mm, that's another way. Another path to, uh, let's call it hysteria, that is to say, uh, a position that is not just frozen, uh, it's beyond denial. You simply become several people, that's what it is, you know. There's the, uh, well, there's the one who's in pain, and then there's the one that you, you, uh, well, let's call her the mask. Anyway. Uh, Quentin Bell, the nephew, had the limitations of his era and of his sex. I think that he's simplistic about Virginia's psychosexual life. Mm. He quotes a letter in in this biography. Uh, yes, uh, he he says Virginia alludes to her frigidity. Now, the letter that he uses, I think, <laughs> alludes to nothing like frigidity. Uh, Here's what Virginia wrote. Uh, she'd just gotten married to Leonard Wolf. She says, Why do you think people make such a fuss about marriage and copulation? Why do some of our friends change upon losing chastity? Possibly my great age makes it less of a catastrophe, but certainly I find the climax immensely exaggerated. Except for a sustained good humor... <laughs> Leonard shan't see this. Due to the fact that every twinge of anger is at once visited upon my husband, I might still be Miss Stephen. Stephen is the uh, her, her uh, maiden name, birth name. Uh, anyway, she's thirty at this time. Yes, a great age. And uh, I think uh, I like to put that letter next to one by Charlotte Bronte. She apparently had the same sort of reaction, you know, what's all the fuss? Uh, I don't know if this is frigidity. I think it's simply the absence of feeling, lack of fulfillment. Uh, there may be a difference between, yes, the two, but anyway, I think that, uh, I think that we have not gotten to the bottom of this psychosexual, uh, what do we call this nowadays, uh, a diagnosis. Yes, we have not diagnosed it yet. Uh, we're getting there. I recommend a funny little movie called Hysteria about the invention of the uh, vibrator back in the 19th century. Very funny little movie. Doesn't really deal with the subject, but it is very lighthearted. Hysteria, right, uh, Anyway, Vanessa, the sister, 
writes about the period following Virginia's honeymoon. She says, they seem very happy, but are evidently both a little exercised in their minds on the subject of the goat's coldness. I think I perhaps annoyed her, but may have consoled him by saying that I thought she never had understood or sympathized with sexual passion in men. Apparently, she still gets no pleasure at all from the act, which I think is curious. Ah, they, Virginia and uh, Leonard, were very anxious to know when I first had an orgasm. I can't remember, do you? No doubt uh, I sympathized with such things, if I didn't have them, from the time I was two. That's a direct quote from Virginia Woolf's sister, Vanessa. Uh, I think it's very revealing. Anyway, I'm going to skip. Uh, this is an old essay of mine called Shakespeare's Sister. I'm going to skip through it and try to give you a few more notes on Virginia Woolf. It's a very long essay, yes. Um, Shakespeare's Sister, you remember, met a bad end, um, was Virginia Woolf's projection of what would have happened to a woman uh, were, you know, were she to be uh, Shakespeare, to have his talent. Uh, yes, she would have wound up, I think, drowned, pregnant, that kind of thing. Uh, anyway, uh, Virginia was not like her sisters. There are several that she has an older half-sister, Stella, who also devoted herself to serving male mystiques, uh, did she call them cockadoodle? Never mind, I can't use some of these words on the air, so I'll just skip over that. Check out Vita Sackville West if you want more material on Virginia's sexuality. Uh, actually, back in the beginning of her marriage, uh, she seems to have had a notion that Leonard might awaken her sexually. Uh, perhaps because he was a Jew, she imagined he was more erotic than those Bloomsbury blokes she hung out with. You know, blokes like Lytton Strachey, he was gay, to whom Virginia was once engaged for the better part of a day. Perhaps what Virginia calls Leonard's passionate nature, in quotes, is just English for someone who cares. It seems he loved her. In any case, he developed a real capacity to nurture her genius, a willingness to love her as she was. She writes that she loves to be loved, yet uh, she has a physical aversion to her husband. Yes, as she says, I will be doing this dance on hot bricks until I die. In 1939, the Wolfs received a visit from Sigmund Freud. Freud gave Virginia a narcissus. When I first read about this incident, I supposed that he, he meant to chide her, you know, insult her. Then I thought about it. Today, most people use the word narcissistic to mean self-obsessed, uh, selfish, uh, but... In some mythologies, the god Narcissus also represents our reflective soul. Ah, uh, I think 
of the moment Virginia Woolf describes. It's the opening section of her essay, Room of One's Own. She's gazing down into the water. Uh, she's looking into a pond. She's wandering around what she calls Oxbridge. That's a, a college or university that she, she uses uh, to represent Oxford and Cambridge. Yes, there she is at Oxbridge. And she's trying to grasp her thought, her a little little thought, like a fish, you know. Um, she's interrupted by this fussy male authority figure who tells her that women aren't allowed on the grass. She must go, go somewhere else. <laughs> this made a deep impression on me, this passage, when uh, I was a young college girl. Uh, fortunately, I was in a woman's college. Uh, the right to be alone with my thoughts and not to be interrupted by officious males became not just a right but a duty. Of course, it's still true even today that if Freud or any other uh, authoritarian male gives a woman a narcissus, he's probably accusing her of being less than outgoing. At the end of Freud's visit, Virginia wrote that he struck her as an alert, screwed up, shrunk, very old man. He had asked her what the English were going to do about Hitler. Well, what Virginia was going to do was kill herself. She and Leonard had discussed suicide if Hitler invaded England. In fact, it seems that her own fear of another mental breakdown, always her recurring nightmare, that's what really drove her to her death. She was 58 in 1941, suffering auditory hallucinations. She wrote in a suicide note that she heard voices again. She, uh, succeeded in drowning herself on 28 March 1941. She put large stones in her pockets to drown the river. She says to Vita, right, the one experience I shall never describe. There's a movie called The Hours. Nicole Kidman, Australian actress of some note, uh, she... She's wonderful in the role. People laughed at her, you know, because she she used a prosthesis. She did terrible things with the nose. Anyway, Nicole Kidman is not just a pretty face. She's very good in a, uh, a recent biopic, Hemingway, yes, Hemingway, the one, the one wife that uh, Hemingway couldn't... <laughs> couldn't compete with. Uh, anyway, I think that Wolf's experience is of value, her skepticism, yes, not just because of the skill with which she wrote and thought. Uh, I found her to be a prophet. Uh, she was in the beginning a woman of her time. Uh, I think, yes, that feminist primer, A Room of One's Own, is the book that any feminist should start with. Yes, that's the one. Uh, Feminism 1A. She had this notion that women writers must, must avoid bias. 
We must never, never have an axe to grind, she said. That spoiled the writing. She cautioned women against being shrill. Now, she's right about that. <laughs> and I wish I had time to tell you why. Uh, she ends, of course, by telling us that we go alone. There is no arm to lean on. Uh, we have to do this thing all by ourselves. Uh, Next time, I think I might have time to read about Judith Shakespeare, her imaginary woman back in the uh, Elizabethan age. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next Tuesday, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. Summer time's right around the corner, and that means I'll finally have time for books, music, and movies. But I can't really afford to go to the theater or buy new books or CDs. Don't dismay, friend. Dollar Days here at KPFA at our very own parking lot garage sale. We will have books, CDs, and DVDs, most for just one dollar. Not only that, but there will be music and munchies. What better way to spend the afternoon? Live in the parking lot, we're going to have great jazz-ish entertainment by Mutual Aid Duo Project and more surprise guests. Dollar Day at KPFA. Get ready for summertime fun on the corner of Berkeley Way and MLK. Saturday, June 15th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. 